Would we rather be thought of as a powerful, influential and strong church or as a weak, feeble and unimpressive church? Well, actually, neither is particularly appealing. You see, the church and power aren't necessarily a good mix, are they? But a weak church isn't great either. But perhaps the church looks more weak than powerful to you right now. The Western church has been in steady decline and its influence in society has dwindled somewhat, although it's probably a lot more nuanced and complex than that. Nevertheless, in the eyes of the world, the church does look powerless and weak, and many would like to see it stay that way. But we must also remember that the way of Jesus and his kingdom is very different to the way of this world. Power and strength in Jesus' kingdom can actually look like weakness in the world's eyes. Where the greatest should become the least. And the lowest are raised up to the highest. Now, now the problem with being a powerful church is that we might then end up relying on our own strength instead of Christ. And the problem of a weak church is that we feel defeated or discouraged. Either way, We can be tempted to seek worldly power and strength in order perhaps to impress or feel better about ourselves or something like that. And what about you, maybe personally as an individual Christian? Maybe you're the only Christian in your workplace or in your family. And you feel weak, you feel small. Everything around you seems set against everything Jesus stands for. Well, over the summer, we've been looking at the first few chapters of Revelation, which contain seven letters from Jesus to seven churches. And today's letter is to the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Philadelphia, not the you know, Philadelphia in the States. This is Philadelphia in, uh, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Uh, this was a, 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 a Roman trade city. It was steeped in... Um, Roman culture, Roman worship, and loyal uh, to Rome. It had some influence in that sense. It, it was also uh, had a temple to a goddess called Artemis, who was a fertility goddess. And she was often portrayed as, as a strong, independent deity. But in verse 8 of this letter, Jesus says that the church there was not strong. They had little strength, and the word is power, little power. Maybe that means they were just a a very small church in a big Roman empire. Maybe they lacked resources and influence in this important Roman trade city. Maybe after years of struggle and opposition to the faith, this church were feeling a bit beat down and insignificant. But Jesus writes to them to encourage them pointing to his power and promises and protection. In fact, except for Smyrna's letter a bit earlier on, it's the only other letter to contain 
Uh, no sort of criticism. It's nothing but encouragement for this church. And my hope this morning is, as we look at this letter together, is that we take our eyes off any apparent weakness or strength we see here in our church or in ourselves and instead look to Jesus again. And we're going to look at this letter under three headings. A weak church hangs on to Jesus. Secondly, a weak church holds on to the gospel. And thirdly, a weak church holds a glorious destiny. So firstly, Jesus wants to remind them that a weak church hangs on to him, hangs on to Jesus. The Philadelphian church had little power, it says. So Jesus reminds them to hold on to him. He has divine authority, which gives them access to his kingdom and all its blessings. Uh, firstly, we begin with verse 7, where he describes himself as one who is holy and true. Now, th- these are uh, divine attributes, aren't they? We've been thinking about holiness already today. Holiness means he's altogether different and set apart from us and this world. Weakness and strength, well, well they mean nothing to him. He's above all of that, entirely independent of his creation. He's not intimidated by power and might. He is the holy God. And he is true, holy and true. That word means faithful. He's trustworthy. He can be relied upon, especially by the weak in this world. Come to me, all you who are weary. He's also the one who holds the key of David, it says. Now, this is an expression that's drawn really from the Old Testament and particularly a rather obscure prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And in that prophecy, um, what's going on is a, a steward of the kingdom of God called Shebna. And he was using his political office and power for his own personal gain, which is all too familiar story, isn't it, when it comes to politics. But God promises to take the keys of authority in the kingdom from him and give it to a faithful man called Eliakim. And so here's what it says. Isaiah 22, verse 22. I will place on Eliakim's shoulder the key to the house of David. Remember, David was Israel's great king. From him would come a Messiah. Jesus would come and uh, rule God's kingdom. It continues, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him. Its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. See, Isaiah there is really a, a type of what he's saying about Elijah is really a type. It's, a, it's pointing us to Christ. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And God gives Jesus authority and strength and power on which the whole kingdom, the whole family of God can kind of hang itself like a coat peg. He has authority as well to open and shut. He, he gives access to the house of God, to salvation. And all of its glorious blessings. So here's Jesus holding the key of David 
to open and shut. He is the one and the only one who can open up the doors of God's kingdom. He's the only one who can bring us into the blessings of God. He's the one who uses his power, not for himself, but to pour out blessing on his church. This is what Christ is making available to the, Philippi- uh, um, to the Philadelphians. I might call them Philippians, right? There's another book in the Bible, but the Philadelphians, right? Look at verse 8. It says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. See, Jesus is saying, look, I've given you access to me. You can trust me, the holy and true one. You can hang on to me, a peg in a firm place. You may have little strength. You may feel weak. But I am a strong and powerful saviour. And no one can threaten that or take you away from me. Friends, whatever weakness we have, either as a church or your feeling today as an individual Christian, listen to the words of your saviour this morning. He's above all the powers of this world. He's entirely dependable in our weakness. He has divine authority to give you access to the kingdom and its blessings. He knows. He sees our weakness. He sees you breaking down in the middle of the night when no one else sees because it's all gotten too much. He sees the facade that you've got it all together when really you're struggling. He says he knows. And he offers you access to his power this morning, his riches and blessings. So, hang on. Hang on to Jesus, church. And dear friend, maybe, maybe you don't yet call yourself a Christian here this morning. What are you waiting for? <laughs> what are you waiting for? The door is open. I am the door, Jesus says. You can come through me. Come in. Come in and and find life. Recognizing your own weakness, your own powerlessness. Stop hanging on sin. Stop hanging on pegs that will break and fall. Hang on to Jesus. He will save. He will strengthen. He will bless. Come to him this morning. The door is open. A weak church hangs on. To Jesus. Secondly, a weak church holds on to the gospel. A weak church holds on to the gospel. Jesus continues here to encourage his church. He commends them for their faithfulness to him and to the gospel, despite their weakness and little power. They had held on to the gospel, and so he encourages them to keep holding on. We see it firstly again there at the end of verse 8. It says, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. It says something similar at the beginning of verse 8. Uh, sorry, verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you. In fact, you could translate this from the original Greek as something more like this. You have kept the word of my patient endurance. And what that would probably be referring to is is the gospel message itself about how Jesus persevered through his suffering 
for our sakes as the only way of salvation. That was the gospel by which the Philadelphians had committed themselves and were living by following that Jesus who persevered for them to the end. They then themselves were persevering to the end. And I think that's an important point because they had held this gospel message of a suffering saviour called Jesus despite living among those who really essentially rejected it. Now, for example, the Romans, okay? Remember, Philadelphia is a powerful Roman trade city, loyal to the empire and rife with Caesar worship. And Christianity, you see, was a threat to the Roman way of life with its subversive view of power, its different sexual ethics, its regard for the poor and slaves, its political, uh, different political loyalty and so on. Listen, the Romans couldn't care less whether Jesus was God or not or rose from the dead. It was all sounded a bit nonsense. Jesus was a bit of a joke uh, to the Roman world. A donkey God dying the death of the lowest slave. That was it, what it was to them. What they cared about, what riled them, was making sure your faith didn't impinge on their way of life. Don't bring your Christianity here changing the way we do things. Now, does that sound familiar? Can you imagine then, it would have been very tempting for the church to change the gospel a little bit, to tweak it, or to give up altogether on it to suit the context. But they didn't. They did not deny his name, it says, verse 8. When the culture said, pledge your loyalty to Caesar and these ideologies, not this Christ, or suffer the consequences, they said, no. We're hanging on to Jesus and the gospel. But it wasn't just the Romans. It was also the Jews as well. They rejected Jesus on these kind of religious grounds. They rejected the gospel itself. Salvation was through uh, loyalty to Moses and the Torah, the commands, and, and being circumcised and all of these sorts of things. You must make yourself righteous before God. Not through trusting this suffering Messiah. We've got no room for that. But Jesus, he has strong words for them about these Jews, doesn't he? Look at verse 9. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. He calls them liars because they have denied Jesus and opposed the church. He says something similar, didn't he? We saw this back in chapter 2, verse 9. The Jews, of all people here, ought to have accepted Jesus and the gospel, but they'd rejected him. And they were persecuting and slandering the church. They were more in line with Satan than they were with Yahweh. And it was surely tempting them for these Philadelphian Christians to give up. Uh, some of them, many of them perhaps, Jewish converts as well, tempted to go back to their Jewish beliefs. But, but they kept the word. They held on to the gospel. They stayed faithful and endured patiently under the scorn and suspicion and threats of powerful forces around them. Just like Jesus did. And so Jesus encourages them. Look, you have held on. You've kept my word. Now keep holding on. Keep going. He says it explicitly. Verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have. He says, I'm coming soon. Just a bit longer. Just hold on a bit longer. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take 
your crowd. I was encouraging Phoebe as we were coming here this morning on our scooters, right? Not me, they had their scooters, right? Coming up the hill up here, and I was saying, go on, Phoebe, keep going. She was just coming up to the crest of the hill, and I knew as soon as she got there, it would be much easier for her, but it was a struggle at first. Hold on, keep going, you'll soon be there. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And that crown there is a uh, symbol of salvation. Sometimes it's called the crown of life in the scriptures or the crown of righteousness. It means salvation. But the Romans and the Jews and these other ideologies, these other beliefs would threaten to take this crown if they would give up the gospel. Salvation is at stake if we start tampering with Jesus and the way of life. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure you're seeing this. Our culture, our context is very similar to the Philadelphians, isn't it? Our culture sees Christianity as a threat to its way of life. It actively preaches its own alternative gospels. People aren't necessarily heated up and frustrated and angry when we talk about Jesus rising from the dead. They get heated up. They get angry when we start to challenge the way of life. Salvation is, is not through... If it, it, salvation, it, that the culture says, is not through Jesus. It's not through Jesus. No, 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 no. Let us find our own way to life through maybe personal fulfillment and expression. Be who you want to be. Have sex with who you want to have sex with. Be true to who you feel you really are. Live with as little restraint as possible. Trust in earthly strength and power and riches. Don't let anyone tell you, especially Christians, that you're wrong. But the true gospel of life challenges these ideas. It threatens our culture's way of life. I saw that clearly this last Friday when we were on the street. We were talking to people about abortion and sharing the gospel with them. You see it very clearly. This is a threat to us. The gospel says, it, it lays a challenge before our world. It tells the world we must repent. There is only one way. There is only one person who can give you life. In the Lord Jesus. The gospel says real salvation, real freedom, real identity, real life is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only way and the truth, and the life. If you lose that, you lose salvation. Brothers and sisters, don't give in. Hold on to Jesus. Trust in his gospel. Don't change it or abandon it because it seems like the world rejects it. Don't change it or abandon it because the, 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 the gospels of the world seem to offer more and they're tempting you away. Don't change it to make it more appealing to those who are perishing. Hold on. Don't let anyone take your crown. Hang on. A weak church hangs on to Jesus. A weak church hangs on to the gospel. But finally, a weak church holds a glorious destiny. In this uh, challenging time for this little church, Jesus wants them to look up and look ahead, encouraging them to see the end and this destiny that awaits them. 
He does that in a few ways. First, by promising he will vindicate them. Look at verse 9. He tells them that those unbelieving Jews who are giving them such a hard time, well, one day Jesus will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. In the Old Testament, there were many scriptures and and prophecies that told God's people that despite their oppression, one day all of the Gentile nations would come and bow before the Jews and acknowledge that they are God's people. But Jesus is kind of flipping the script a little bit here. And he's saying that it's unbelieving Jews too who will be made to acknowledge that Jesus loves his church. So, hold on, little church. This is your destiny. You may be small and overlooked today, but soon all the universe will know that you are loved by God. God. Secondly, he encourages them by pointing them to his protection through testing. His protection through testing. Look at verse 10. He promises, I will also keep you from the hour of trial or testing that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, um, some think that this hour of trial refers to a time of, you might hear the word tribulation, um, a time still to come, and, and a time when Jesus is going to rapture, you might have that word, rapture his church and gather them up uh, to heaven and, and escape it just before it comes. I'm not sure if that is what this verse is actually saying, though. I think it has something either specific in mind to the Philadelphians that they were about to experience, Or it refers to an ongoing time of trial that had already begun and continues today and may well keep intensifying. Whatever it is, Jesus promises to keep them from it. It won't ultimately harm them. The language here you see is similar to Jesus' prayer in John 17 verse 15 where Jesus says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Whatever suffering the church faces, and the church will suffer, Jesus protects her from ultimate harm. Indeed, we know that uh, we won't escape suffering in this life, but through suffering, we can be strengthened, we are blessed, and it cannot ultimately rob us of our salvation. So here's the encouragement. Hold on! Little church, this is your destiny. Though you suffer trial and difficulty, I will keep you from harm. You will be saved through it. It cannot ultimately touch you. A third glorious destiny Jesus points them to is that he will make them pillars. Jesus will make them pillars. Look at verse 12. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Now, uh, this picture, pillar picture, is a great encouragement, isn't it, to a weak church. They will be made pillars. Pillars are strong and durable. Um, In Philadelphia, it was prone to earthquakes as well. And they'd have several earthquakes. They would have seen buildings crumbling uh, under those pressures. Um, It's interesting, though, if you look at, you know, you've seen the pictures of ancient Greek or Roman buildings. What's left of them tends to be just the pillars. Everything else has all fallen down. It's the pillars that remain. Here, God will make them strong 
pillars. Their powerlessness in the eyes of the world will be totally dispelled when they're revealed in this way. And look where these pillars are. Look where they're located. In the temple of God, the house of God. That is her destiny. A weak and obscure church that will one day be located in the most sacred place in all the universe. In the presence of God himself forever. So, hold on little church. This is your destiny. Though weak in the eyes of the world, soon you will be made strong pillars in the house of our God forever. And one final thing. He promises he will give them his name. He will give them his name. Look back at verse 12. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. This is what they have to look forward to. What you have to look forward to today. You will receive God's own name. You already have it. And and to have God's name means really to be marked off as his. He's stamped you with his name. You're mine. You're precious to me. You're my own special people, my children, and I love you. If you have my name, I love you. And they have Jerusalem's name too. We thought a lot about Jerusalem, didn't we, during our Nehemiah series. You know, some people are very proud of uh, where they come from. Uh, you know, you, maybe you've heard expressions like this. You can take the man out of Reading, but you can't take Reading out of the man, right? Where's Clive? I think of you when I think about that, right? Yeah, Reading guy. But this is about where we're going to, where we'll end up, the city to which we belong. God's people are identified with that place, this new city, a heavenly community with God. And then there's this wonderful expression, Christ's new name. I mean, we're all like Lord Jesus Christ, if we really want to give him his full time. The Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus has many names. Many, many names. All revealed throughout the scriptures. I've got a big poster at home filled with all these names of God. But what is this new name? There's something more to be revealed about God. Something more to discover in the future. There is more of his love, more of his grace, more of his power, more of his goodness to be revealed to us. There's more to come. So hold on, little church. This is your destiny. To dwell with God forever as his precious people, discovering more and more and more of his love and glory. Vindication, protection, pillars, let's call it presence. That's our destiny. A weak church hangs on to Jesus. A weak church holds on to the gospel. A weak church holds a glorious destiny. The way of Jesus' kingdom is very different to the way of this world, where the greatest should become the least. The lowest are raised up to the highest. We must not be tempted to trust in worldly power and strength or even ashamed of our weakness. We trust in Jesus. We hang on to him. In your weakness. And boy, some of you are really going through it right now. The message is very simple. (laughs) Whatever I've said today, keep this message in mind. Hang on. Just hang on. 
Hang on today. Just one more day hanging on to Jesus. Hang on tomorrow. Just one more day. Just one more week. Just one more month. One more year. I'm coming soon. Hold on. Hold on to Jesus, a powerful saviour who gives us everything we need. Hold on to the gospel that points you away from the lies and the fleeting, dying world to Christ's deeper riches. Hold on to the end. He's coming soon. Your destiny is far more wonderful than your present problems. Hold on. Let's pray.